Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a concept that affects a large number of people on the planet, and that's the world of nonprofits. My guest today is an expert on this topic. My guest today is Dr. John Casey, who is a professor in the Mark School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College at the City University of New York, uh, commonly called CUNY. Dr. Casey has been an active practitioner, educator, and researcher in the public nonprofit sector in Australia, Spain, and the United States for over 20 years. His new book is titled The Nonprofit World, Civil Society, and the Rise of the Nonprofit Sector. Dr. Casey, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you being with me today. Let's jump right into your book. First off, how do you define a nonprofit? Uh, that it seems like they're are there various categories of nonprofits, various uh, delineations, or how do you define it? Well, there's a general definition, which is the fact that these are non-state, non-government organizations organized for the public benefit, uh, some sort of public good. Uh, you cannot get profit from the organization. So there are no owners who take out profit. In fact, the, the non-profit structure in most countries depends on uh, ownership, let's call it, or control governance by members of the organization. But I'll say it also depends a little bit. And you're going to hear me say that word a lot uh, because we're talking about uh, a global look at the nonprofit sector, and it varies a lot from country to country. I see. So, uh, do you have an idea of how many nonprofits there are in the world? Um, we don't know because there are some uh -huh. countries, a very few countries in the world, that have good statistics on the, the organizations that have registered under the you know respective nonprofit leg legislation of each country. But there's only maybe a dozen countries in the world that can give you accurate information. There was actually one attempt to uh, to create a global list of nonprofit organizations. It kind of fell over, fell down when they'd got, I think, to about three million organizations. But um, we really don't know. There's, as I said, very few countries that have accurate uh, statistics on the number of organizations. Exactly. I can see where it would be very difficult to have the accurate statistics. Yeah. Very, very difficult. I mean, here in the United States, we know that, you know, there, there are 1.5 million organizations registered under our 501c category within, uh, you know, our tax code. But there's very few countries that can give you that sort of precise number. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we're going to put up your website so our viewers can go to it, take a look at it and get more information on this very interesting topic. And again, I would think 
that a large number of the people on the planet, uh, maybe you have a figure on that, would be involved with a nonprofit one way or another. Yeah. Are they not? Yeah, so most people participate in some way, whether as volunteers or as contributors mm -hmm. to some sort of non-profit effort. And here we get to into one of my many depends, right? It depends, are we talking about an organisation or some sort of informal neighbourhood collective? You know, you go out with your neighbours and clean up some trash in a local river. You may not need a formal organisation to do that. We are talking about formal nonprofit organizations, but you know, community effort, public efforts to participate in some sort of public way in a collective effort is is a global phenomena. It certainly is, most assuredly. And it seems to be that it's becoming even more popular as people want to get involved in helping to resolve many of the crises that we have in the world today, like climate change, human trafficking, and just on across the board. I was curious about this. So often we hear about non-governmental organizations, NGOs. What is the difference between a nonprofit and an NGO? Okay, one more case of depends. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole lot of words we use to describe these organizations. And I, uh -huh. I teach a course on the, the global perspective on the nonprofit organizations. And the first day we look at a list of over 30 words, 30 terms that students are going to uh, find in the literature they, they read. So nonprofit organization and, the, you know, that term nonprofits is something we tend to use more in the United States. But in other countries, for example, they might call them voluntary organizations, community organizations, uh, social good organizations. The term NGO kind of for quirks of, you know, discourses about the sectors ended up referring mainly to international NGOs, those nonprofits working on an international global level. Um, that the NGO is generally seen as a positive term, but there are countries, for example, where, you know, NGO is almost a dirty word. NGO is associated with these large, uh, powerful NGOs from the north, which are seen as kind of neo-colonialist, and they use other terms for their local organizations. Uh, exactly, most assuredly. Now, what are a couple of examples of large nonprofits as opposed to smaller, I would not, we, we, there are millions of them out there. We couldn't yeah. identify them. But like mm -hmm. I've been involved with Rotary International for many decades now. Mm -hmm. Rotary is, I guess, would be a nonprofit, but it would also be an NGO. Is that correct? Well, it's a nonprofit, and if you want to call it an NGO, um, <laughs> yes, but you could also call it a you know a professional association because uh, Rotary is based around kind of a, a business you know business owners and business people structure. Um, look, it, the the nonprofit, the NGOs that people most think of are international aid organisations such as. Uh, you know, World Vision, for example, um, or they may think of human rights organizations, uh, Amnesty International. They may think of environmental organizations such as Greenpeace. But the nonprofit form, the nonprofit legal structure is used by a wide range of organizations, for example, sports organizations. People might be surprised to hear that, you know, FIFA and the International Olympic Committee have as part of their structure a nonprofit organization. They also have for-profit arms, 
and we can talk later about the complexities of the legal forms that these organizations use but you know so there's international sports organizations there's international cultural organizations and i point out in my book is the international nonprofit that probably affects most people in most ways is the international standards for organizations uh, international Organization for Standards, sorry, the ISO. So ISO standards, look around you. Everybody listening should look around them. They're, they're surrounded by dozens of objects that are constructed to ISO something standard. ISO is an international nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, you've studied nonprofits for years. You've written book, uh, books, perhaps, on it, or yeah. articles, I'm sure, and... What are some of the megatrends that you've seen develop with nonprofits over the years? Are there, are there certain prevailing trends that well, have that, taken I mean, place the, or will take place? The first trend, of course, is the growth of the sector. So uh, we can talk a little bit about why it's happened, but the reality is that uh, depending which country we're talking about, um, there's mm -hmm. been a spectacular growth of the nonprofit sector um, since you know 1960s, 1970s. Um, in post-Soviet uh, Eastern Europe since the 90s, in uh, many developing countries since the 90s, the 2000s. So number one uh, trend is the growth, the huge growth in the number of organizations. You know, the, uh, almost every country can show you some sort of, even while they might not have accurate numbers, they do have some sort of trend of an exponential growth in the last decades of organizations. So that's the first trend we would have to talk about as uh, you know, the, and we can talk about reasons for it, uh, either bottom-up reasons, people's interest in independent organising, independent government, and also top-down reasons, interest by governments uh, to divest themselves and privatise a lot of services, which are now taken over by non-profits, or even uh, for-profit corporations that are interested in using some of their money and some of their activity for for promoting non-profit type purposes. That's, that's a good point too. What do, are there other reasons too why we've had this prolific growth over the past couple of decades or whatever the case might be? Um, well, I mean, we could pick any, any. So first of all, let's talk about governments around the world. You know, okay. As, so, yeah. as governments have taught, sought to downsize, have uh, governments, you know, you can either look at it as pushing out responsibility for services to non-government organizations or simply seeking to partner with non-government organizations. So, you know, there's definitely been uh, uh, that trend, certainly, uh, private corporations which have sought to demonstrate their social responsibility. There's very few brands that people are aware of, you know, sort of, for example, service or clothing brands that the private for-profit organization doesn't also have a non-profit uh, foundation, you know, perhaps with the same name as the corporation itself, uh, or certainly would be giving money out to nonprofit organizations. And then as the nonprofit sector itself has become larger, it's been able to advocate for itself through professional associations of nonprofit organizations. And that has also fueled the growth. Mm -hmm. Those are major reasons. And I think yeah. we're going to see more and more of it as we move forward into the future because we see there are so many problems and so many issues that are of interest to people and they want to be involved and this is certainly one way they can do it well you're watching global connections television which is a privately funded independently produced program the opinions expressed on global connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests 
We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a, at a concept, uh, the concept of nonprofits and how the, the whole, really the whole area or the whole arena has grown so dramatically over the past several decades and what are the reasons for that. My guest today is an expert on this topic. Dr. John Casey is a professor in the Mars School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College, City University of New York. His latest book is titled The Nonprofit World, Civil Society, and the Rise of the Nonprofit Sector. And Dr. Casey, the, it, uh, we, we could spend hours talking about the nonprofits. What, what do you see as the most important thing that we should know about when we think about nonprofits right now as, as we all move forward and hopefully dealing with many of these problems such as climate change, human trafficking, and many others? Uh, I mean, uh, the, the fact that they are everywhere um, and people need to can look around and see how nonprofits are organizing in their area. You know, if we focus on uh, the United States, for example, here in New York City, many people aren't aware that, you know, Central Park is not run by the city of New York. It's run by the nonprofit uh, Central Park Conservancy, which started in the 1980s or actually in the 1970s, 1980s, as some concerned neighbours who were concerned about what was happening with the park and so decided to you know, make some contributions and to do a little bit of work um, to, to clean up the park, get it into better condition. In the 1990s, the city of New York entered into agreement. It passed the management of the park from the city to the Central Park Conservancy. And now the Central Park Conservancy raises the vast majority of funds used to maintain Central Park and employs the majority of the, uh, of the employees who work in the park. So that would be one example. If I can quickly give another example, I've done some sure, work. Do. Yes, I've done some work on downhill skiing and snowboarding in the state of Maine. Many people are probably not aware that up there there are 19 ski areas. Of those 19, 11 are 501c3 nonprofit organizations. Small sport ski sports clubs that over the years have grown into, and they can be quite substantial, ski and snowboard areas. Um, if people look around, they'll see that nonprofits, particularly in you know, Western democracies, are a huge and have been a growing part of their lives. Well, we are <laughs> we are affected by nonprofits and we're involved in nonprofits, mm -hmm. whether we know it or not. <laughs> we yeah. may or may not be aware of it, but I think most people are. Well, before and, Please. Sorry. Uh, and, and then you talked about, of course, you know, what most people do associate with nonprofit things like, you know, international. And if we're talking about international nonprofits, the international human rights organizations, international environmental organization, Greenpeace. You know, we've just had the, the COP meeting, the, the uh, climate meeting in uh and we've seen the role that non-government organizations, NGOs have sought to, you know, maintain some sort of semblance of pressure on corporations and on governments to address climate change. 
Exactly. Yes, most assuredly. Yeah, the comp uh, meetings, major meeting is going to be analyzed for for years to come. Right, it's, right. Uh, mm -hmm. Controversial, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> but exactly. anyway, well, again, before we run out of time, I do want to mention two other books that you've written. I, I they sound so fascinating. We won't have time to go into each in great detail. But if you could just give a little overview of the the one, well, we'll do both. The Police Leadership and Management. What was that book about? So prior to coming to Baruch College here in New York, um, I taught at the Australian Graduate School of Policing uh, in, in Sydney, Australia. And uh, so I saw that there was a gap there, a need to explore how police leadership and management function. So what was it like for police officers to rise up through the ranks, move from being a street cop, essentially, to taking on managerial responsibilities? And again, you, uh, you know, looking at the different ways in which different uh, police organisations around the world organise their leadership. Some police organisations focus on internal uh, promotion. Other uh, police organisations bring in leaders uh, from outside, sometimes even outside from outside policing. Mm -hmm. I, I would imagine that'd be a fascinating book to read, especially mm -hmm. because the police are important to yeah. all of us, obviously. And I was working there in the Australian context where there are um, there are only, what is it, nine police agencies in all of Australia compared to the United States where there's 30,000. So instead of each uh, town having its own police uh, police agency in Australia, the police agencies are organised at state levels. Uh, so each state has its own uh, police single police agency and then there's a, a federal police agency. So the police agencies in Australia are very large organisations. Certainly on the, they're on the scale of, say, the NYPD as opposed to some sort of small town uh, police agency. And so, you know, they have 30,000 officers. They need strong and skilled leadership. And so we were working with the emerging leaders in, the, in those organisations in the context of policing in Australia. And also we had police officers from around Asia and the Pacific, but we we're focusing primarily on Australia and of, of skilling up the future leaders of policing in Australia. Mm -hmm. So the there's is there a national police in Australia? You, you, do you have seven states in Australia? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, we have seven, and then there's a territory. There's a, a territory. Okay, yes. So there's but, the Northern Territory and the states. Uh, yeah, Canberra and then we. Yeah, and then no, that's the kind of that's a federal, a bit like DC. It's you know a, a federal entity. Um, yes, we have the Australian Federal Police, uh, which are both the police of the the city and the territory, the Australian Capital Territory in Canberra, and then they have some sort of national uh, responsibility, some uh, some somewhat akin to the FBI. That's probably the easiest way to look at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating topic. As they all are. Well, the other book you have is the policing the world. Yeah. Uh, so often the United States is accused of being the policeman of the world, but uh -huh. I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not. No, no. Again, so it's uh, similar okay. to my on non-profit organizations around the world. It's taking a global look at policing. So first of all, comparing policing models around the world. How does it operate differently in different nations? As we've just said, you know, the US has around 30,000 
police agencies because there's a, a high level of decentralizations, whereas there are some countries uh, where they may only have one or two police agencies for the whole country. So it looks at the different national models, but also looks at the global nature of policing, for example. You know, how is the UN organizing within peacekeeping? So, you know, the UN has that peacekeeping through military, but it also there in many police uh, peacekeeping uh, different you know projects around the world they will also have what would be a more civilian police they're taking on policing roles as opposed to military roles and so and then of course there are you know international policing organizations such as interpol which seeks to exchange information about uh, about fugitives and uh, about police and there are international associations of police chiefs who are constantly exchanging information about the policing profession and working globally sometimes you know there are international organizations of uh, police agencies and police uh, police personnel that may be working kind of in parallel there. Their governments may not exactly be friendly or working together, but there's a dialogue between police agencies because there are these international organisations and structures, which, linking back to the earlier conversation, are generally organised as non-profit professional associations. Right. You mentioned the United Nations peacekeeping operations, and right now I think they're phasing one out. I think it's in Mali, but I'm not sure. But there are about 11 UN peacekeeping operations. But but you're right. They so often have peacekeepers who are right literally in the line of fire <laughs> in very dangerous areas. And then you have police people who are there. They're, they're in a dangerous situation, too. But it's it's uh, dramatically different at, at some point as mm -hmm. far as the type of expertise you need in yeah. a dangerous area, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, you know, after the the more you know complicated uh fighting is stopped there's still a need for law and order and at that stage the un is sensitive to the idea that there are certain things that shouldn't be done by the military because the military has a different skill set a different approach and so in in some of the peacekeeping operations the emphasis shifts from a military presence to a uh, police presence. So we'll call them a civilian police presence in the sense uh, as opposition to military presence, but they're, you know, a law and order police presence. So they will send police officers. So again, you know, from my days in Australian Graduate School of Policing, I knew many officers that had spent time working on US missions, obviously not as military, but as police officers and helping restore law and order after the fighting has stopped. Exactly. And I remember, too, in I think it was Liberia, as I recall, they had peacekeepers there, but they also had a police action to help the Liberians to deal with their difficulties at that time. And they brought in for the first time, they brought in female peacekeepers, right. which was really quite a unique concept, was it not? Yeah. Yes, yes. So the, I mean, female police, covers female within the military, but also female within the police peacekeeping uh, operations. So yes, the, the idea that bringing in 
uh, yeah, often, you know, the police agencies in many countries that have just finished, you know, a process or finished a civil war, the police agency is completely destroyed. So a way in which to, to create some sort of sense of law and order and kind of bring in new standards of policing is to send in police officers, but also female police officers to uh, provide some sort of model of what the options are with the re-establishment of a, a Indigenous or local police agency. Exactly. Well, it's it's a very difficult area to deal with. It's one's challenging, but it's one that we need in this world, especially in troubled areas, and as we need all around the world in all probability. But this has really been a fascinating conversation. But let me ask you, in the last 30 seconds we have, do you have a closing idea for us to, to think well, about just, as we move forward? Well, that people should be aware how how much non-profit organizations are doing for them and their communities and, and identify those organizations and certainly provide support for them, whether it's monetary support through donations, volunteering through time, or uh, you know by giving their time or simply supporting those organizations when, when some sort of issues come up uh, at the local level and what can be done to support those non-profit organizations, which are incredibly valuable to our lives, to our communities, to the structures uh, that, that we operate in. They certainly do benefit our communities and really help our lives really so we can live better lives, come right down to it. And so people can take a look at the groups they're involved with. They can Google a variety of nonprofits, whatever. They can go to the United Nations, www.un.org to get more information. Or they can take a look at your book, the new book titled The Nonprofit World, Civil Society and the Rise of the nonprofit sector. But Dr. John Casey, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very interesting program. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for your time and thank you for inviting me. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.